Hey, this is Frank. And this is Jimmy, otherwise known as the Salty Millennial. And before we get started on today's episode, uh, we wanted to observe a moment of silence in honor of Memorial Day and to honor the fallen. So uh, just take a second here to reflect before we get started. Salt Force One, a podcast where we talk all things Navy, military, and other global happenings. I'm your Commander-in-Chief, Frank. And I'm Jimmy, otherwise known as the Salty Millennial. And who do we got today, Jimmy? Well, on the line we have uh, Mr. Sal Mercagliano. He is um, Associate Professor at uh, Campbell University, uh, where he uh, is uh, uh, an expert in uh, the Merchant Marine, uh, both in experience and in his education. Um, so before I uh, go too much on uh, his bio, uh, Sal, can you hear us? I sure can. Great. So th- first of all, thanks for joining us on uh, Salt Force One. Um, we just wanted to uh, chat a little bit with you today about your experience and your education uh in the Merchant Marine, find out a little bit about what the Merchant Marine actually is, yeah. uh, why why we care, uh, both uh, for me me being in the Navy and then for Frank being um, a uh, know-nothing <laughs> civilian, right. uh, just an American citizen, uh, why it matters to him. So, um, And I'll be totally honest, I actually have no idea what the Merchant Marines are. Whatsoever. Yeah, so maybe that's a good place to start. Sal, can you tell us, uh, so, so <laughs> this, is a, this is a leading question because one of the articles... Uh, that brought me to you. Um, the 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 running question in the article is, uh, I don't know what the Merchant Marine is, and Sorry. I think you were actually involved in writing this article. So, so Sal, I'm going to open it up with the with the question: What is the Mer- the U.S. Merchant Marine? Well, first off, the uh, the Merchant Marine isn't a military force. It's not one of the armed services. It's not really a, a structured entity what, whatsoever. The the best analogy I ever have for what the uh, Merchant Marine is. It's like uh, airline pilots who fly planes. I mean, the Merchant Marine are, are licensed by the U.S. Coast Guard. They're not in the Coast Guard. But they operate all the commercial ships uh, that fly uh, specifically for the American Merchant Marine under the U.S. flag. Okay. So everything from a fishing charter boat that you go on, that captain has to have a six-pack license, to the Staten Island Ferry, to uh, the offshore support vessels that deliver supplies out to the oil rigs in the Gulf of Mexico, to the large super tankers that bring oil down from Valdez, Alaska, to the West Coast, and including uh, almost all the replenishment ships in the U.S. Navy. Huh. Okay, so it and really by is... the Merchant Mariners. So it really is every ship that flies under a... a, a that flies an American flag is Merchant Marine. Yeah, it's every commercial ship, you know, and then there's, huh. na- there's of course, national Merchant Marines, and so, you know, same thing, every nation has their own... Merchant Marine, and again, it, it is the commercial vessels. Everything you know, everything non-navy, non-coast right. guard, non-government uh, is basically falls under that banner of the Merchant Marine. And the I, People's it, Navy. How many are we? Do you have an, an idea of uh, the scope of how many how many ships are we talking about? I mean, I, I mean, I guess that's well, a, a I broad mean, question. If you, if you use the number, for example, the the, the larger vessels, the, the ships over a thousand gross tons, which are which are the kind of the 
the ocean-going vessels. There's about 50,000 ships that ply the world's oceans. Okay. Uh, about 180 of them fly the U.S. flag. Uh, hmm. If you look at every craft, every you know, from barges and tugs that fly the U.S. flag, you're talking about 50,000 uh, vessels in the uh, United States. Okay. I'm talking tugs, barges, every every type of vessel along that, that line. Yeah, but, we, you know, we, we tend to play an away game uh, when it comes to, uh, um, you know, well, war for one, and then you know, just uh, in I terms prefer of, war on a, yeah. as an away game. <laughs> so we we really are going to be relying on those a thousand ton ships that you said are about on the order of one hundred and fifty. Um, you know, it's not like I mean, have you seen the the movie um, Dunkirk? I have. Yeah. So at, in the end, uh, um, all of the um, uh, the ship captains, uh, big and small, come to the to the aid of the soldiers that are stuck on the beach. Um, you know, everybody in his yacht, his personal little boat and dinghy and, and yacht and things like that. Um, I don't think those are going to be sailing across the Pacific to, uh, come to our aid. Um, it's going to be those thousand tonners. Uh, <laughs> you don't think someone's going to take a jet ski across the ocean? No. But, you know, I, I, I don't doubt the, the, um, the will of the people. I mean, I, I know that, uh, people are going to want to, you know, there's a, there's a certain patriotism, uh, I think. Um, but, uh. You know that that to me, right off the bat, that 150 seems like a low number. I don't know. What do you is that is that adequate for um, what we need it, it, both in in peacetime and in the event of a of a war with a a major power such as China? No, and and that's the reason I've been writing a lot about this. You know, myself, John Conrad over at GCAP, and a few other ones. Uh, there's been a lot of press on that. Dave Lauder over at, at Defense Times, yeah, been writing about this. And there's been a lot about it. You know, in, in one of the issues is, you know, if you go back, and, and again, I apologize, I'm a historian, so I love to tell historical stories. Yeah, no, awesome. please. Is, 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 I mean, the, the original Navy, go back to the Continental Navy of 1775, that was founded from the Merch Marine. You know, literally ships at the dock in Philadelphia were slapped with guns on, and that became the very first U.S. Navy. And yeah, was like that John the... John uh, Jones and John Barry were all merchant mariners initially. Was that the Six Frigates? Uh, eventually, the, eventually, you get down to the six frigates, but it doesn't even predates that. This is the Continental Navy. I gotcha. Okay, I guess that makes sense. That you sense get down to, and in, in truth, over time, the the Navy and the Merchant Marine had been pretty seamless together. They operated very well. They were interchangeable because of, you know, in the age of of wood and sail, it was pretty interchangeable. You know, the crews can you know go from being commercial sailors to operating on Navy vessels because a lot of commercial ships had weaponry to defend themselves against pirates and, and other other elements yeah, yeah but when you get into the 20th century really that's when you really start seeing this bifurcation it begins to really change yeah and we have always relied on the merchant marine in the past to you know transport the beans the bullets and the black oil but now we're in a pretty desperate situation that our merchant marine now is pretty small if you know we came out of world war ii with the largest navy in the world and the largest merchant marine in the world Today we have the largest navy in the world, but we have the twenty-second largest merchant marine in the world. Whoa. Yeah, yeah. And Whereas China is second in both of those. Great. And and what's important when we're trying to uh, wage a, a large-scale war halfway across the earth is to get those beans and bullets and black oil um, and soldiers, you know, across the ocean. Um, it's going to be it's going to be critical. Um, the, you know, make or break kind of capability. Um, so we've, we've, we've set this up. We, we, we do, so we do not have the capacity, um, that we're going to need and we could probably get by today. 
um, with the kinds of um, demands. But but in in, ter- in the event of a war with China, which I hope never comes, but uh, clearly we are in the military. We are preparing for it. Um, and it's pretty clear we're not ready from a logistics point of view. So, um, I just found a, a stat here. It said that uh, Greece and Japan uh, remain the two largest ship-owning countries by capacity, uh, but China owns the most actual ships. Now, is that sh- uh, ship-owned or ship-flagged? What? <laughs> so you you can you you can register your ship under a flag, and it doesn't mean that that. You, you, that's the owner of the uh, the vessel. So. I would have to. Okay. Uh, I don't know. This um, is from the Economist. Yeah, or... but, the, but China is clearly in a position of, of dominance. Um, so, Sal, step, taking a step back for a second, G Captain, tell tell sure. us tell us what G Captain is. So, uh, G Captain was started oh about fifteen years ago by uh, John Conrad. He's a graduate of the State University of New York Maritime College. It's one of the uh, six state maritime schools where you can get your Merchant Marine credentials. Yeah, uh, John started it as as kind of uh, it started off as a blog and, and uh, kind of very similar to what you're doing. Uh, started off, but what he was trying to capitalize on was was hit the commercial aspect of shipping. Okay, and and he he found a nice kind of niche with that. You know, you had the old style kind of newspapers and journals that were out there, but no one really had a, a blog out there that was hitting it on a on a daily basis. Really, you know, every day new material coming out. He had a podcast early on with that. And so he, he's really hit that, that little niche, what, what maybe like the Naval Institute is, for what the Navy does. John's trying to do that for, for the commercial industry, and not just the American, but across the board. I mean, uh, you know, international. The thing about commercial shipping is it's really intertwined. It, it, yeah. it is, you know, it involves multiple facets, multiple nations, multiple, you know, uh, organizations across the board. And so uh, John's got a really uh, a great venue there to to hit, and uh, you know he he is the one that a lot of people will go to when there's information. You know, back in the day, uh, newspapers uh, and and uh, and uh, magazines and and even TV outlets would have maritime journalists who focus just on that. They don't exist anymore. Yeah, Instead, I, I think uh, that would... John is like that call you know the go-to guy when it comes to something. Yeah, it's 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 impressive, and clearly he hit on. On something he struck a chord. I mean, there's definitely a demand for for this this website. It's uh, uh, grown uh, significantly since its inception, and uh, I, I really enjoy it. You know, in one of my my other roles, I am the president of uh, Simsec Center for International Maritime Security, and right. uh, you know, it's it's we're we are uh, not nonprofit uh, think tank. You know, we but we we just uh, it, in a similar way, we just encourage people to write for us, and we we post their content. And we we try to focus on the international perspective. So so much of uh, you know if you're in the if you're in the U.S. Navy, then your perspective is very American, and you the Naval Institute, for example. But uh, um, you know there's there's a lot of interest out there from an international perspective because it's it's the international commons, you know the 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 open ocean, the, the high seas, and we're we're all affected by it with global commerce, and it's not just it's not just military, um, you know with um, uh, some eighty percent of the the world's trade going through, going over the ocean or something. May, that may be even a low number. Um, it's it's a uh, it's critical and uh, um. So th- this website G Captain is uh is impressive. I now, like the logo too. That's good branding. Yeah. No. Uh, 
what is the, the just this is just I'm curious what's the G stand for in G Captain or do you know Gangster. I'm asking Khan will never tell me I've never been able to find out oh, okay that's a, that's a mystery I'm, someday I will find out but I just don't know <laughs> I'm gonna say it stands for gangster yeah <laughs> I, I think it's 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 got that's not you what know. I think it stands for but you can go with that Frank <laughs> <laughs> so it's 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 um. It's in uh, alluring, you know. It, it brings you in, and then you're you're. Are you an editor for for G Captain, or do you just contribute? No, I, I just uh, I, I contributed uh, okay. uh, articles, and they're they're kind enough to publish them. Simsec published one I did uh, about a year or two ago. Oh, great! On the, okay. the stealthiest ship in the Navy, uh, uh, which was a merchant ship. Oh, I love that, it. That, that I, I posted out there. It's a ship that the uh, uh, military sealift command chartered. Uh, they got Maersk Lines to uh, convert this vessel. It was called the Craigside. Now it's called the Ocean Trader. And they modified it into a special operations platform ship. But, uh, they, they, if, in case you don't know, every commercial ship has a automatic transponder, the AIS, the automated information system transponder. Well, uh, the Craigside, once you became Ocean Trader, went offline and you could not find that ship anywhere. Huh. Uh, you couldn't even find it on the official documents of the MSC, uh, the Military Seal Command, that they charted it. And, and so they converted this vessel to look like a commercial ship, but it was full of helicopters, special operators, and uh, no name on it. Hmm. Look at and, that, and Navy. Kind of like the classic, you know, like auxiliary stealth cruiser of, of like World War II. I like it, and, yeah. And she would be able to operate out in, in, in oceans, and you would never know her, uh, that she was a U.S. Navy ship until, until it's too late, obviously. We need, to do, we need to do more of that. Yeah. And then we also need to do more of talking about that kind of capability so that we can do some, you know, a little double deception, right? So then we can, we can have all kinds of just regular merchant ships that they're trying to, it's you know, Navy vessel <laughs> described, hidden yeah, as a merchant yeah. ship, hidden as a Naval vessel. <laughs> so, yeah, a little that's, misdirection that's would be helpful. One of the things that uh, John and I talk about is, is, is unfortunately that, you know, there's, there's this one world, which is the commercial world. There's this one world that's the Navy world and never will the two really interact together. Yeah, and, and one of the things that I've tried to do, because you know, I sailed with Military Sealift Command. I was a merchant mariner, but I worked in a Navy headquarters in D.C. Is is really try to bridge those two and 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 make each other realize, hey, there's a lot we can draw from each other here. Yeah, that that has a lot of utility. You know, I, I give you the statistic. I always tell people, and even people in the Navy don't know it, that one out of five ships in the U.S. Navy, out of the 300 ship battle force, are crewed by merchant mariners. You, huh. you would not. Most even in the Navy don't know that. Yeah, no. Are you are you referring to the uh, the oilers and the uh, supply ships mostly? Yeah, all the oilers, supply ships, the uh, the, the the fast transports, the, yeah. uh, the 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 tenders. Right. Uh, you know, and that, that's a huge statistic that people yeah. don't really realize that 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 twenty percent of the entire Navy has that you know a, a civilian merchant mariners uh, you know crewing them and operating on them. Especially and, and again, when that they rely on that pool of mariners, yeah. not just to man those ships. But also those commercial ships that are going to bring all the supplies needed for the military in, in a potential operation. You know, going to war with China is a lot different than going to war in Iraq when you have a staging base in Fujara or in Oman. You know, it's a couple hundred mile run from one end of the Persian Gulf to the other. 7,000 miles across the Pacific. That, that's a, it's a whole quantum leap different when it comes to logistics. Yeah. So, you know, we, you've got Hawaii, which is. Uh Partway there, mm-hmm. um, we've got Guam, uh, Diego Garcia, but that those are those are spread apart by thousands of miles. Yeah, still not close. Yeah, yeah, and and we have partners in in the Philippines, but they're being influenced every day. Um, 
it's Singapore uh, also. So um, China is is China is not just doing this this uh, so-called anti-axis area denial with their weapons. You know, they they don't just have a missile umbrella over the South China Sea, but they're also doing it diplomatically. So they're influencing pe- uh, countries that that could be our partners and trying to sway them. That's what I don't like about China. They just they seem very efficient at what they're doing and it just seems like everything is going according to how they would like it to go and, and yeah. they don't look scary and evil uh they well i uh, mean they're kind of scary but they don't look too evil <laughs> yeah it's it's uh it's definitely um whole of government approach you know total yeah. total war and they're in some respects you could say they're already at war um and they're just not waging it the way that we're used to seeing um but so it, it, you you mentioned uh iraq you mentioned fujara uh, staging bases in the in and around the Arabian Gulf. So recently in the news, we've talked uh, about um, uh, Iran kind of causing some some trouble, and uh, we've the the U.S. has talked about flowing in some some uh, uh, carrier strike group and a bomber task force, and then some number of troops that went from hey we're considering 120,000 to, to 1,500. Yeah, I think it was 10,000 at some point. Now 1,500. Uh, could could you give us a, a sense of uh, comparison between that that sort of flow of of you know beans and bullets and, and troops into the Middle East versus what you would need from a merchant mariner perspective to support um, uh, operations in, in in the Pacific? Um, maybe you know the, the the first phase of a war. I mean, are we talking about like uh, double or, or three times, or, or do you have a sense of of what it would what it would take from a from a merchant mariner perspective. Yeah, I mean, you would have to uh, again. The, the distances in the Pacific are just so astronomical that that it magnifies everything. Just assuming no combat losses, assuming no interdiction of of supplies by by whatever force you're talking about. Just you know, just you know, right now we're we're stockpiling fuel, and we could draw fuel from the Middle East. But if you're talking about bringing fuel from California or from the, uh, uh, Texas through the Gulf of Mexico, through the Panama Canal and across, just, just the voyages, it takes you two to three weeks across the, the Pacific. Yeah. You know, you can run the Persian Gulf in a day and a half, you know, two days. Yeah. And, and so just, just by that number wise, you, you're going to see what kind of a, a, a force you're going to need. And the problem we have is just right, right now we've shifted the way we handle Logistics. If you went back to 1990 when we fought the first Persian Gulf War, you know, Navy manned, Navy crewed oilers serviced the battle group. And then MSC, Military Sealift Command oilers, would pick up the oil, pick up the fuel from depots and replenish the oilers. And so they were that kind of that middle, middleman in, in, in the formula. Well, we have eliminated the Navy oilers. We, you know, there are no more Navy crews on auxiliary ships. They're gone. Okay. And now it's all civilians on the oilers. But the problem is, what we did was eliminate one of those two ships. And so now the MSC oiler doesn't just support the battle group. It's got to go back and get the oil, which puts a lot of sailing time on those ships. It puts a lot of strain on them. The, the oilers are the oldest of that fleet right now. Uh, the oldest one was built back in 85. There's a new class being built at NASCO in San Diego, but there'll be a few years before they come online. And, yeah. and so, you know, we're, we're, we're very good at what the commercial world calls just in, just out logistics. Right. In other words, you know, we, we, we ship what we need, 
you know, you don't ship any more than you need. You just, just get what you need, pull from it, and then you go get more. Just which works great in the commercial it. world. You know, it's exactly what you want in the commercial world. The way Walmart makes money is not by having stuff in the back room piled up on the shelves. They yeah. want everything on the shelves in the front and then going out the front door. That's what they want. They want to bring the goods in the back door and out the front door. And that's not what you want to do in warfare. In warfare, you have to have those stockpiles. You have to have those depots. Yeah. you got to be prepared for up. combat losses. Right, you gotta be ready for combat losses. You gotta be ready for the what if, the yeah. X factor, the 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 oh that we didn't expect that to happen. Yeah, you can't wait two and, weeks and or something. And that's the big flaw that we're missing right now. And the the ships that are operated by military sealift command, and then the commercial ships that are out there, are not enough to provide that scenario. And and the problem is, can you count on foreign flag shipping to fill in that gap? No, and, something. And, yeah. Okay. It's, oh, sorry, go ahead. Go, not to interrupt, but it, something in um, an article uh, was referencing that we could um, basically take or so we could take ve- vessels that were American and, and, and basically conscript them for uh, that kind of shipping. But that we could also tell our allies, hey, you need to give us your ships as well. And it didn't seem like it was saying we we could ask. It was saying. Um, we can demand it. Yeah, we can demand. Uh, is that is that accurate, or, or how does that work? Well, I, I, I make the argument that you can't always depend on the Allies for yeah. what you want. I mean, just recently, the Spanish frigate that was escorting the Lincoln cut loose. And yeah. Spain decided, hey, we're not going to follow along. And and so you I know, that Spain, was which I would consider a fairly good ally, sat there and said, you know, no, we're not going to do it. Yeah, and the Navy's been uh, touting this whole dynamic force employment concept, and uh, the strike group was an example of that. And then the, the Spanish government says, well, this, this strike group is not doing what we signed a contract to do, so we're out. Which, huh. that doesn't sound like dynamic force employment to me. So uh, I, I kind of had a, a laugh about that, but yeah, I mean, it, it's... Um, it's a great example. We can't can't always rely on your allies, um, yeah. especially when situations change. Especially, yeah, when, it's, uh, when bodies are on the line. Yeah, yeah. right. And 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 you know, it, it comes to this issue that I always get in, in a debate with. There, there, there's a piece of merchant marine legislation called the Jones Act, which is the Merchant Marine Act of 1920, that says that all ships traveling between U.S. ports, moving cargo or passengers, have to be U.S. built, U.S. flagged, U.S. operated. And oh, yeah. if if we're any other country but the United States, if we're if we're you know if if we're Costa Rica, we don't need a Costa Rican merchant marine. We can depend on our goods coming across the ocean on foreign flag ships. You know, hey, I don't care what ship my goods that show up in the local Walmart come on, do I? I really don't. You know, mm-hmm. I just care that they get here and they're reasonably priced, and you know, I'm able to buy them. But if you're a superpower, if you're have military presence overseas in multiple areas, in multiple continents, you know, then are, are you comfortable with the idea that, hey, I'm going to load my most sophisticated weaponry system on board a ship that just showed up at the dock that's flying a Liberian flag with Ukrainian officers, Filipino crew that's operated out of a shop in Hong Kong, uh, am I sure that gear is going to show up where I want? And oh, am I also sure, sure that that gear is not going to get photographed and and, right. and and tampered with in any way? Yeah, it's it's and, it, and that does happen, and it's usually China or or Russia. 
uh, at the at the, the the root of it, you know, with uh, the the kind of um, not just espionage, but they're they're just uh, collecting whatever they can collect. And right, that's... And, and, and then there's just stupid things. In 2000, the Canadian Army was shipping back. They had just come off a deployment into Bosnia, and 10 percent of the entire Canadian Army's equipment was on board a ship that they chartered, uh, a ship called the Katy. It was coming back from across uh, from Europe across the Atlantic. And because of the way the commercial world works, the company that owned the ship got into financial trouble, and the ship was arrested. You can actually arrest <laughs> ships like a human. The, the ship is responsible for its, its, its cost it incurs. Yeah. And to prevent the ship from being physically arrested, the operator of the ship told the ship to stay, don't come into port, just cut holes in the middle of the ocean. Oh, my God. And the Canadian Army found themselves with 10% of their equipment, the best equipment they have in the entire Canadian Army, floating in holes off of Halifax. Yep. And they couldn't get it. And the Canadian Navy actually had a fast rope onto the ship and seize the ship and bring it into port. Wow. This is why you're only allowed to play defense, Canada. That's, that <laughs> is, I mean, that's a mission kill. That's more effective than a torpedo. You know? That's right. <laughs> and, you know, and that, I think, is also, Jimmy, one of the other aspects that we, you know, we tend to think, okay, world, you know, if we fight China or Russia, it'll be like World War III. It'll be, it'll be, it'll be Battle of the Atlantic, Battle of the Pacific, Part Three, and it, it may be nothing like that. China yeah. may go into, you know, call in the biggest shipping firms in the world because if you look at containers, for example, there are only eight big shipping companies out there. They're all in these big, huge alliances. They transport over 80% of all the world's cargo. Is that like uh, Mer- Maersk? And, China can uh, manipulate these guys and sit there and say, hey, yeah. don't trade with the United States. If you trade with the United States, you'll never trade with us again. I'll run you out of business. I mean, yeah. uh, isn't one of them, a, the, is Costco, C-O-S-C-O, isn't that the, the actually Chinese government's yep. uh, corporation? Is it really? Yeah. So It's, it's one of the biggest ones there is. Yeah. Uh, Panama Canal, the, the Chinese just paid a huge amount of money to, to the Panama Canal to build this brand new bridge across. And what if the Chinese use influence with the Panamanians, say, listen, you know, we're going to send all our ships via this new Arctic route where we've, we're developing, and we're going to run you out of business because you're going to have no money yeah. from tolls running through. Uh, how about you not allow the American ships that are coming from the Atlantic to come through the canal with all those troops and cargo and force them to go around South America or through around Africa. Which would be a, a huge toll. I mean, it's just on the, um, at least around Africa, that's about an 11-day increase uh, vice going through the Suez. And I, I imagine it's similar going through going around South America. And as they acquire more ports and other Yeah, and it's, that, it's, there, it's the, uh, the, the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, I mean, we, could do, we, we probably should do a whole episode just on China and their, the, the, the terminology that gets floated around the buzzwords and we just to, to sort through all of it because it kind of starts to shape a strategy, a national strategy for them that uh, it's, it's very interesting. Like you allude to this idea that it's not going to be this, the battle of the Atlantic. It's not going to, World War three is not going to look like we, we think it, it, it should look like. You know, it's, no, I mean the belt and road initiative is a perfect one. Those little islands in the South China sea, you know, nobody realizes, you know, if we, if we get into a conflict, we got to go to Korea, for example, we have a huge, as you mentioned, the uh, prepositioning units that are out there in Diego Garcia. There's a whole force of ships sitting there waiting for the balloon to go up. If if we have to send those to Korea, are you going to send them through the Malacca Straits, past Singapore, into the South China Sea, into that missile envelope? Because the Navy has already announced we don't have escorts for these vessels. That's another, yeah, I was going to bring that up. We've We've said publicly we don't have enough escort ships 
to you know destroyers and cruisers to escort the merchant mariners um, that we don't have enough of anyway. That you know we don't have enough to even escort them. So talk about combat losses. I mean you're gonna, you're going to be going alone and unafraid. Huh? Yeah. It's it's um. I mean I. I hate to make it sound so doom and gloom, but I think we're highlighting something that really needs to be to be pointed out, and we we need to focus on this. Yeah, I know. I'm suddenly depressed. Um, you know, and and, and th- so this is also bringing up something that's that I think is fascinating: the parallels to five uh, G that Frank and I talked about a couple of episodes ago, where you know China's building that infrastructure. So you mentioned you know putting your your va- invaluable. Uh, military assets on ships that you don't own and don't control. Well, that's what we're contemplating doing with our information. Uh, yeah. On the on the the. Um, it's just communication. The, the telecommunications them. infrastructure that they're that, that China is building, and luckily we're we're wising up to it. And, but uh, our British allies, are, you know, our partners across the pond, are thinking about investing in in Huawei, and um, it mm. could get could get interesting. Um, so but I think it's prime minister. Yeah. Um, so so May is out, right? Uh, she said she was stepping down from the head of her party, and then as soon as the new prime minister was named, she'd step down. Yeah, I, the... I saw a headline that said Theresa May resigns, and mm. I had to read it a few times because I is it Theresa May resign or Theresa May <laughs> resigns? She's uh, she pretty much resigned. She's got, she said okay. it'll probably be out about two weeks before they they name a new prime minister or something yeah. like that. Um, so, so Sal, sorry to go off on a little tangent there, but I just think it's, it's uh, interesting that, you know, this idea of China wage, waging a war that's, that's not going to, not looking like what we think it should look like. Um, and I think that the, the merchant Marine is, is, uh, is going to, going to be a, a huge part of it. Um, and, you know, one of the things that, uh, uh, stood out to me in, in an article that I, that you um, contributed to is uh, this uh, quote from uh, Secretary Mattis that the Merchant Marine is in every war plan that I review. I guarantee you because you're going to be the fourth arm of defense. Hmm. And I think Sal, I think you actually wrote a book um, called The Fourth Arm. Is that right? I did. It was about a sea lift in the Vietnam War. Okay. All right. So, um, what what were some of the the lessons from the Vietnam War that we could um, that we could apply going going forward. I mean, were were we? Is it a good news story from from Vietnam? Obviously, you know, it's the, 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 all the great stories. From yeah. Vietnam. So I mean, I, I don't I don't know I don't know the the, the specifics of the the Merchant Marine in in Vietnam, but um, was uh, were we were we as unprepared as it seems like we are today? Well, I, I'll give you. a i give you the, the three quick, dirty lessons that we got from it. The, the first one was the, the idea of, of going into Vietnam with, with Westmoreland's large, you know, Westmoreland, the, the general behind the strategy there, wanted to go in with these huge, massive units. And everybody told him, you're nuts. This is Vietnam. It's, it's a small, little southeastern Asian country. You can't bring in a first-class military into a third-world nation. You know, the, the logistics aren't there. The ports aren't there. Nothing's there. And, and one of the things we did in two years was we fixed the ports, we changed it, we overcame that. And, and I think it puts us, or at least it puts the military in the mindset that we can overcome the logistics hurdle. Huh. You know, there's, there's always this argument, what drives wars? It's strategy or logistics? Yeah, there's and a yeah, saying, you know, it, um, it, It's a chicken talk, and egg argument, yeah. but I, I always argue that in the U.S. military, it's the strategy because we'll figure out the logistics. We'll make the logistics. We've always made it work. Okay. 
and, and that's something we did in Vietnam. The, the, the second thing we had is we had a merchant marine to draw upon because we had a leftover from World War II. This is only 20-something years after World War II. We were still had the vestiges of that, that war-built fleet. And so we were able to make do with, with what we had at the time. The problem is if you look at the 10-year Vietnam War from 1965 to 1975, uh-huh. back when wars were short, is much different in 75 than it is in 65. It, it decreases by half, and it's just not, you know, we probably couldn't do it as well in 75 as we did in 65. Yeah. And and, and so I, I think we, we realized that there was a big difference. And then the last thing, was we came up with the ultimate technology to allow us to wage war in Vietnam, and that's because of a guy who lives, or grew up right where I, where I live in North Carolina, by the name of Malcolm McLean, a, a truck driver from North Carolina, developed the concept of containerization. This, ah. this idea of putting these intermodal, you know, twenty foot, forty foot containers, not just on trucks, but on on trains, and more importantly, on ships. Yeah, and, the box and, and there was 122 ships waiting to offload in November of 1965, and the U.S. military couldn't figure out we, you know, how do we offload these ships. It's just taking too long. We got to move piece by piece, the same way the Phoenicians moved cargo. <laughs> how do we do this faster? And it's this truck driver who came up with he actually been trying to sell this idea for a long time. He just couldn't get anyone to buy it. And finally, he realized I could sell this to the U.S. military. <laughs> They'll buy anything. They're, yeah. <laughs> they're desperate. I'm a contractor. Let me sell this to them. And son of a gun, <laughs> he haven't learned anything. And, and he sold them with 11 ships, and he freed up that logjam. And and now, when you look at you know, his first ships, uh, carried just a couple of hundred containers. You know, the newest container ships coming out now carry 22,000 boxes. Wow! Holy shit! And, 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 you know, it's this guy from North Carolina who comes up with this. You know, again, it's not, a, it's not a merchant marine guy. It's not a shipping guy. It's a truck driver. Yeah. Who comes up with that solution because he just, he saw it from the, from, you know, from the boilerplate up. This is what we have to do to make this change. And the military jumped at that. They actually did. And, you know, and, and in many ways, we owe our current international shipping to, to Malcolm McLean and the Vietnam War in one strange way. So now do you, you make good container houses, too. Yeah, no. Oh, man, they're they're great for everything. Yeah. I mean, they're they they are the all-purpose uh, design. Uh, you know, it's the Lego block of shipping. <laughs> I think you know. I mean, <laughs> no kidding. I think we're going to see uh, Connex box in neighborhoods here pretty soon. Um, but so, do you think that the capacity that we let go in the Merchant Marine is in some part due to the efficiency that the the box the container brought that we 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 got so efficient with the with containerization that we let go of some of the capacity that we had before I, I think we got i hate to say we get complacent but we do logistics so well that we take it for granted yeah. it's, ju- it's just a given yeah i mean you it's know, we, it, i'll tell you from we, the military planning think perspective, about it yeah you know, if, I, if I, mean, I lose power at my house because a hurricane comes blowing through i'm not out the next day rigging power lines i know that the local power company is going to come and rig power lines and i'm eventually going to get my power back but, yeah. you know, if you keep doing that with logistics, if you keep, ah, oh, the ships will always be here, the Merchant Marine will always be here. Somebody else will take care of it. Right. And if nobody else is, you know, if the zombie apocalypse happens, they're not coming to do it. Yeah. And it's incredible how, uh, you know, shit starts to fall apart pretty quickly when your power is out for, you know, give it give it a week. Yeah. It powers out. Or, or you don't have access to the Internet. That, that These days, it seems like not, not having the Internet is even more important. But... Um, you know, just things start to devolve pretty quickly, and 
if you're trying to fight a war halfway across the world and and in the uh, <laughs> your logistics friends aren't there um it's going to go south pretty quickly um hey we're we're all nine meals away from killing each other for a twinkie that's yeah that's that's, <laughs> that's a great that, that's i love the that ultimate yeah. fact and, and yeah, that's what sometimes hours. is forgotten and, and again you can't build that infrastructure when it's too late you know back in in World War One, which is a study I'm doing right now, one of the things we found ourselves with is we didn't have a big enough merchant marine to haul our gear across for World War One. So we basically yeah. had to requisition steel, cajole, and 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 build what we needed. And and you know, in a modern scenario, in a modern conflict, you know, a peer-to-peer confrontation against uh, China or Russia, you're not going to have that time to build ships. You're going to have to figure out how to do it real quick. We can grab ships. We can you know. Hey, we need to load twenty thousand troops on a on a on a ship. Not a problem. I'll go down to Fort Lauderdale and I'll grab a uh, you know Carnival cruise liner. That's that's the easy part. Yeah. The hard part is right now. Who drives it? Who works the engine mm-hmm. room? Yep. Because you know, again, the Navy's telling me they don't have enough people to do it. Nothing personal, guys. But Jimmy, you guys aren't the best ship drivers <laughs> in the world out there all the time. <laughs> what? And and you know, it's it's again, I got. I got to tell you, I got to go on and on about what the Merchant Marine thought about the Fitzgerald and the Cane. Oh, oh, oh yeah, yeah, right, stop. Let, let's let's hear it because I've like got some thoughts. This. We've taught so Frank and I have talked a lot about this. I think Frank is a de facto expert on the topic because I've inundated him <laughs> with uh, rambling of my own. We've had uh, Brian McGrath on. We've had the lawyer for the uh, the captain Commander. of the Fitzgerald yeah. on. Um, so we've talked quite a bit, but we not heard. An outside perspective on the people driving the ships that night. So, so please, Sal, tell us your perspective on not just the Fitzgerald and the McCain, but just in general. How how are we at driving ships? Because I, I I do want to hear this. Well, I, I'll, I'll talk about the the Fitzgerald first okay. because again, I, I listen. I heard your podcast with that. I know uh, Brian was at MSC when I was at MSC. Uh, I know John Conroy got in a huge argument with, with Navy personnel uh, when he posted issues on G-Captain. I come back, you know, I, I've heard the arguments about this is a systemic problem. It goes back to the 1980s. It's Seventh Fleet. It's all this thing. I come back to a very simple question is, why did that officer of the deck on the Fitzgerald not look out the right window <laughs> and see a bu- huge honking container ship coming down on top of her at yeah. any point? That's yeah. impossible. In the evening. You can... Talk about communications with the, with the with the CIC, everything else. How do you not see that? Yeah. How do you not? You're on the most maneuverable platform on the world's ocean. Well, I, and as, as and as my instructor told me in, in rules of the road uh, uh, class, if you're ever an extremist, you just make sure you're not in the same point with that other ship at that same moment, and and that's how you avoid the collision. Yeah, no, that's great advice. I wonder. I I I, I can I hold her accountable. Um, but my question is, how do we let, how do we qualify her? How do we qualify a person to stand that watch that would, that would not look out the window? That's, that's the part that, that concerns me. It's, it's, well, it's two part. It's one that we, that, that she didn't look out the window, but then we gave her a swoop pin. We gave her an officer of the deck qualification. Somebody along the way said, you're, you're qualified to stand this watch in absence of the captain and, and, and maneuver the ship accordingly to, to keep her safe. And and she's. But it goes back to a, a, a simpler issue. I, I go back to this: is you know, there's a different mindset. You know, when when I became a merchant marine officer, all I ever wanted to do was drive ships. That was my goal. That was what I wanted to do. You know, yeah. when I watched Top Gun, I didn't want to be a pilot. I didn't want to be the aviator. I wanted to be the guy on the Enterprise. That's what I wanted to do. <laughs> to, to me, 
moving the largest object in, in human history through the ocean was better than puttering around in a, in a plane. Oh, I mean, and, I, I'll tell you what, I, yes, amen. I, I have flown airplanes and I have driven ships, and I get a bigger kick out of docking a massive ship and just touching her down just perfectly uh, with, without the assistance of tugs. And it's, to me, that's, oh, yeah. that's amazing. You don't want to be a winged demigod? <laughs> no, what, yeah, whatever they call themselves. <laughs> but it, it comes back, the last ship I sailed on, I was second mate on, a, on an, an oiler named the Lenthal. That captain, this, that was his 24th command. He, he'd been on his 24th command of, of commanding ships. Yeah. It, and, and it really amazed me that after McCain and Fitzgerald and they stood up, you know, this whole Westpac certification group, that they didn't grab from the depth of experience that they have out there a, a master or a chief engineer, one of the guys who sailed on MSC ships for a long time, to go on board and talk about simple bridge maintenance, you know, you know, you know, standard bridge watch standing routine. Yeah. I, I literally had a captain on when we first shipped physically grabbed me by the, the the scruff of the neck when I was looking in a radar and said, stop looking in that thing and look out the window. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's a sunny day. You're not going to see anything you can't see out the window. Yeah. No, those are good lessons. I mean, I remember the, the very same thing, um, you know, being told, get your head out of the pilot house. You got to look, you got to. And if I, if I ever gave it as a, as a conning officer, the first watch you ever stand. So Frank, the conning officer just tell just gives the order to the, to the helmsman. Okay. But he's not making really any decisions. It's just kind of repeating the order down the line. Yeah. Um, but as you give an order to turn the ship, if you don't go walk to the bridge wing and look out and see what you're turning into, you're, you're going to get flame sprayed and, and right, rightfully so, because you're responsible for turning the ship and it's a, it's a basic Basic principle. Is the guy relaying it uh, should look out the ship? Yeah, he's the one that gives the order. Okay. So then he owns that order. And he needs to look. He needs to go and that's see. Good idea. It, you know, he's he's also the one that has always has his eyes forward. He's not right. allowed to. I mean, you really don't even look back. Maybe to, to, to give an order back to the helmsman, but that's huh. it. Um, I mean, it helps when you're deciding which way to go to actually look before you leap. Yeah. It's almost well, like there should be an expression about it. I, <laughs> you would think so. But then we have the, uh, the McCain and the Fitzgerald. Um, so it's still, it, uh, it baffles me that, that we have these, these issues and, and you, you know, you, you, Sal, you brought up the point that maybe we're not the best ship drivers. I mean, I honestly have, I've even written about this, that, uh, I'm, I'm a swell, I'm a proud swell, uh, a naval officer, a surface warfare officer. Um, uh, but maybe, maybe we shouldn't even be driving ships because we've, we are, have so much responsibility to, to fight the ship. Uh, from a tactical and operational perspective, and so many things that we need to focus on, we we've never really—I mean, and I say never—but in my career, the past fifteen years, we've gotten away from our proficiency of of ship driving, and and to some to some extent, modern naval warfare has less to do with driving the ship, and more to do with just getting to sort of point A to point B. I mean, missiles—you cannot run a missile. And and so the speed and the range of naval warfare is different than it was, and so the maneuverability of the ship is less about tactics and more about safety. And, and the reason I bring this up, we contract out maintenance on the ship. I mean, we have we have contractors that perform some critical maintenance capabilities. We have, and also whenever you enter port, you bring on the pilot. The harbor pilot mm-hmm. is somebody who who is proficient. Is, is more experienced than anybody on the ship, and he helps you dock safely. 
So he guides you through the, the harbor and, in, and into the to the pier. My question was, and I think I've actually already answered it, well, why, why don't we just contract out the function of, of maneuverability? Why don't we just say, hey, bring on the most proficient mariners and have them do the basic function of driving the ship while the, the naval officers are focusing on fighting the ship? I would hope that our Navy can drive a damn boat. But you, you, you can, but my point is, if you're telling if you're telling these young young men and women to focus all of their time on studying every radar, every gun, every missile, every sonar on the ship, and the the, the and also the the maintenance of the engineering plant, it, at some point you run out of brain cap- capacity, mm-hmm. and so you say, okay, well, what what could we contract out? Well, I, I as I think through this, and then as I hear Sal talk, I'm not sure there's enough mariners out there that we could just allocate to every ship and say okay you could you know drive the ship for us and then mm-hmm. we'll fight it um i don't know i don't know what your thoughts on that are but sal but uh um I, as you as you, you know I, I don't well i don't think you need to have a, i mean you know go back to the, the six frigates that frank talked about before i mean there was actually a, a position a warrant position called master on those ships and those were certified master mariners who would come on board and you know, be the liaison to the captain. Captain's still in command, but, you know, if, if the captain had a question about sailing the ship, he could turn to that master and say, you know, okay, you, you know, do the course change or you do this. Yeah. And, and, and it gave him that expertise. And, and I don't think every Navy ship needs that by any means, but you can definitely have a, a one, two week period where you're riding along with a, you know, a master mariner pulled from MSC or something like that. And he can, or she can sit there and certify the, the, the deck officers, run them through their, you know, run them through. Yeah. And, and do that. You know, to me, again, I, I go back to the McCain, for example. It, it boggles my imagination that somebody pulled back on a throttle and didn't realize they were only slowing down one engine and not two engines. Yeah. And more importantly, no one on the bridge looked at the, the tachometers to realize just one engine was slowing down. Mm-hmm. Or no one picked up the, yeah, you, the you, engine room phone and tell them, you know, give me five knots on both both you know both engines because again you can tell me that well this guy came over from antietam and he was unfamiliar with that how long does it take you to check off to run a home control i mean it's not the most sophisticated piece of technology in the world and these are basic and i can verify these are basic procedures you know you order you give an order to the engine or the rudder and then you you yourself as the conning officer i mentioned earlier you verify visually that it's happening you right. Put, you know, you look and see the rudder is turning is 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 going over. Uh, you look at the engine to make sure it's responding, and then you look visually outside the ship and you see, am I doing what my indications say I'm doing? You don't need to look yeah. out those windows. It's yeah. fine. So, and a, well, and I never rode on a Burke, but I can tell you, in every ship I w- went on, and when we changed en- uh, speeds on ship, we felt it. I mean, you could yeah. usually feel that sensation, and if you had two engines running out of sync, you would know that in a second. Well, that's the other thing is these these two ships were Arleigh Burks. They are the, the Corvettes of the ocean. I mean, mm-hmm. they are, they are sports cars they respond very quickly and they've got four engines for two shafts with two rudders. They're about as maneuverable as it gets. And so if you can't, if you can't handle, if you can't drive no. that, then it's, it's, there's some, there's some problems because uh, a merchant ship or an, an amphibious assault ship, those are much slower and, and more difficult to maneuver. Does speak to right. a level well, you of also experience. have to be more deliberate with them, and I think that's an, another issue that, that's very interesting. You know, a lot of li- a lot of states have these graduated license programs for people driving cars. You know, you got to go, you know, kind of step up. 
and everything. And, and as you said, you're you're literally giving the keys to a Corvette to drivers who may not have as a lot of experience at times driving yeah, ships. Point, you know, merchant point. ships. We have to be slow and deliberate because, you know, you guys can stop on a rudder. I've had, you know, I did unwraps with with, you know, uh, twin uh, twin variable pitch prop ships alongside, and I can distinctly remember we had a I think it was a, a Burke actually alongside. And the captain wanted to make an impression, and so the way he broke away is he threw the props reverse, and he just slammed right back from behind us. Yeah. And, and you know, we went right ahead. But we had an old FFG do the same thing, come alongside of us, do it, and he wanted to do the same exact thing, but he didn't realize that when you stop a single screw that way, your ship's going to pivot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that was a near collision at the time. And again, you know, okay. I, 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 I'm, I'm not trying to bash Navy. Don't, don't think that at yes. all. I, no, I, it's okay. We, hey, that's the premise of my blog. So you're, you're good. I, I know. <laughs> it, it just, what bothers me more than anything else is there's this wealth of experience sailing on Navy ships. I mean, gray ships right alongside and, and they don't tap into that. It just, it, it, it really makes me wonder, it's like, where's the communication here? Yeah. Because again, you know, you could ask any of those MSC masters who are sailing out there in Westpac, and like I said, you can get them on board your ship for two weeks, and I guarantee you, the OODs would learn more in two weeks from those guys than they would from, you know, you know, any group of CDs you guys get and uh, practice on. And don't get me on the CDs. Yeah. I was, I I was a product of those, but I, I, I think I overcame them, uh, through some hard work and, uh, you know, thumb drives. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, no, we can't no. do thumb drives. Don't do thumb drives on government computers. <laughs> right. But, uh, at least, well, in many ways, uh, swallows are like today. logistics. They're taken for granted. You know, like, of course you can drive a ship. It's easy to drive a ship. You know? Yeah. It's well, like and when you ha- it's easy. We'll always have it. When you are given the keys to the Corvette like that, and it's it it does seem easy because you're you're shown how to drive a dual, you know, a, a quad engine, dual screw dual rudder, just uh, reversible pitch. I mean, these things can, you can just spin in circles in the ocean. I mean, you can do anything you want and uh, you, you, you take for granted maneuverability. Well, I mean, to, to draw a comparison to just non nautical stuff. I mean, look at what happened with uh, Jason Pierpaul. He was driving his uh, Lamborghini and he just kind of spun out and broke his neck. And uh, it's just yeah. too much, too much car, perhaps, you know, the, the... he can't handle fireworks. Well, so. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't have all his digits, but now he's, <laughs> Now he's got a crack in his neck too. Yeah. And it seems like it was just too too much car. Yeah, I, I I think there's something to that. Now you mentioned unwrap, and just so to uh, describe to uh, Frank what we're talking about with unwrap, un- under re- replenishment, two two ships meet in the middle of the ocean. One's an oiler, one's a warship, like a destroyer. Sounds romantic. Yep, and uh, we, we come along, we we pull up alongside, and it's a floating gas station. They mm-hmm. they they haul over lines, and we connect fuel hoses and we refuel and throw bunches yeah. of bananas yep uh we do get yeah we get to to pallets and things and and uh, uh so that's one of the great things about our logistics capability it's, it's something that not every navy can do um i don't know i I'm, not, I'm actually not sure about the chinese i assume they're they've gained proficiency in underway replenishment sal do you know are they yeah they do they have a couple of uh what they call aors kind of like smaller versions of our aoes okay out there and they do it but you know I will always say, you know, a lot of things, you talk a lot about things that other navies have capabilities, you know, maybe a little better than us, or we're at the cutting edge of really trying to get into this. Our underway replenishment and replenishment operations are the best. Yeah. No doubt. Our ships are the biggest, they're the most capable. You know, again, when I was doing unrep, to me, that is the best sailing. That was the best sailing I ever did was, was 
when we were, you know, 140 feet alongside an aircraft carrier doing carrier ops. Yeah. With, you know, the carrier to your port side and then a cruiser or destroyer rolling up on your, on, on your starboard side. And, you know, to me, that, that, that was the best. It was also usually overtime for me. So I liked that a lot. <laughs> yeah. I, was making, I was making money then. Yeah. That's, no, that's, that's good stuff. I mean, I was the operations officer on a cruiser. So I was, I was always contacting the oiler and say, Hey, where are you guys going to be tomorrow? We need gas, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I, I, I really enjoyed it. And as much as I could get time on the stick to, to actually drive, I, I tried to because it was fun. But, uh, yeah, I, I think it's, a, it's incredible. That's a, that's a good point. The, our ability to refuel at sea is a, is a critical enabler that distinguishes us from other navies. And I know that we're not the only ones that can do it, but we, we've been practicing it for a long time. And that's going to make a difference in the event of conflict. And it's the same thing with, like, uh, communicating with your allies. I mean, just, just getting on the radio and just talking to uh, a German warship. Um, and being able to communicate, and you got to overcome that language difference, and you got to be able to just communicate basic principles. And for us to have been doing that time and time again makes a huge difference. I'm not sure it was as much as we talk about China being ten feet tall. I don't see them out there practicing with any allies. I think hmm. they're mainly uh, a solo game, um, and and so a lot of the things that we take for granted because we we practice these basic concepts like communication, like underwear replenishment, we do that we do this just every day. Uh, those are going to be critical dis- uh, distinguishers between us and, and 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 an adversary like China or Russia. Makes um, you wonder if they have a whole different approach that they're yeah, and it with. could be they, they obviously we've talked about all of their missile umbrella. They're just their their Belt and Road Initiative, mm-hmm. the the 5G infrastructure. I mean, they clearly have a strategy. They're not right. they're not just going into it dumb and blind. Yeah. But um, we, you know, we've got hey, we this isn't our first rodeo. We've been out there. We know what we're doing to, to some extent. But we're we we do have a lot to learn, and um, I think there's room for improvement. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, I've been thinking about recently with underwater replenishment is. Um, Oh, so so I was going to ask Sal: Does this, this military um, or does the Merchant Marine have its own aircraft at all? Like uh, as far as like rotary wing, like helicopters? No, no. I okay. mean, it, it, is, it is purely commercial. So I mean, it, it you know, and it, it, this is the weird thing that, that that happens with the Merchant Marine. So, for example, if you, if you graduate from the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy, the only federal academy that's basically earmarked for an industry. You graduate with either your third mate's or your third engineer's license, and then you have to have a reserve commission because it is a it is a paid for military entity. But if you graduate from a state school like I did, New York, Massachusetts, Maine, Michigan, uh, Texas, or California, you just get your merchant marine license, and, and you don't you can you can take a reserve commission if you want, but you don't have to. Okay. And so you know we, we're purely licensed uh, civilians, and and so you know. One of the things that happens with with us is is you know if that war comes tomorrow you know I have a second mate's license but it's inactive I haven't kept it up it's very hard to keep up a merchant marine license there's so many fees and schedules and and documentation you have to do and training it's it's just it's too it's it's too laborious to keep it up just to have it but if if war happened tomorrow the the coast guard can issue a waiver I, my license could be activated okay but for example my job's not guaranteed. When I leave, because I'm technically not in a reserve occupation, I'm, I'm not in the military. Yeah. And 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 this this is that weird quasi element of the of the merchant marine in World War II when mer- a merchant ship. There's a lot of debate between the navy and merchant marine in World War II. 
and the Navy will always say, well, the merchant marine guys were paid more. It's like, well, yeah, they were paid a little bit more, but if I'm in a merchant ship in the Atlantic and my ship is sunk, the minute my ship sinks, I stop getting paid. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'm treading water in the Atlantic for free. Huh. It's and, nice and not only you. am I doing it for free at that point, but when I get picked up, if I do get picked up, I have to pay for my own repatri- repatriation back to the United States. Jeez, yeah. And any medical bills I have to yeah. suffer is, is, is on my own. And, and, and that's the real big separation. So, yeah, we don't, we're not an entity, per se, where we have rotor wing or any of that stuff. We, we're completely dependent on the Navy yeah, for yeah. any sort of protection or the armed forces. No, 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 veter- no veterans benefits for... No, no, no veterans benefit. I sailed, you know, I sailed on a hospital ship uh, in the first Persian Gulf War. It's where I met my wife. Uh, she was a oh, Navy okay. nurse on board, and the whole story with that. But uh, she was a Navy nurse on board, you know, and she's entitled to veterans benefits, everything like that. I don't get anything because I was a merchant mariner on board. I was a third officer on board. Okay. All right. So, so you're just a freeloader. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a, yeah, that sounds like a romantic tale. We'll have to dive into that sometime. Uh, so, oh yeah. Well, the, the only reason that she went out with me is because I had a shower in my stateroom. So that was the only reason. Her and her roommates used to ro- take uh, turns rotating through my stateroom using my shower. Rank That's has its not privileges. Not a bad gig. Yeah. <laughs> it was not a bad gig. I was 22 at the time. It was not a bad gig at all. The nice. captain thought I was the most popular guy on the ship. <laughs> probably were at that point. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, go ahead, Frank. What do you think? Um, what do you think we need to do? I guess on a national level or. Um, to to ha- to be ready for something in the Pacific to to be ready to go against a titan like China or what have you or just anything on that that end of the globe. Well, I, I think one of the things that that I have tried to do and 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 John Conrad has done with with G Captain is really number one raise the visibility of the maritime industry. You know, the problem today is you don't see it. it, it it's an invisible entity. You can't get on to a a terminal, for example. You can't go down the savannah and get in the terminal. You can't go up to Newark and get on the terminal because of security issues. Okay. And, and so nobody sees the logistics, the, the transportation. You know, back in the day when ships pulled up to docks and offloaded at the pier, everybody saw that. They, they don't see it anymore. So there's got to be uh, a, a movement to educate on what a maritime industry does, what the merch marine does. I think that has to be done. And, you know, the military did this a few years ago where – Military history and the military post Vietnam was really looked down upon, but it, and they undertook a program, not very well known, but they really tried to educate people in military history and and and, and what positive things the military has done for the nation. I think that has to be done. I think second, yeah. you, you have to get the military itself to acknowledge this. So, for example, if you look at planning documents from the Navy, from from the DoD, from the Joint Chiefs. They don't talk about this. They they just don't. You know, they they. If you look at the, the most recent documents, the cooperative strategy for 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 sea power, they don't talk about merchant shipping. It, it's not talked about at the highest levels. Yeah, I mean, I and think I, we were I, Navy was proud of itself for even including the Coast Guard. <laughs> so hey, give get you know, give us some some time. We'll get to you. <laughs> no, they're very proud for the Coast Guard. But if you look at like page four of that. That, that booklet, there's a big, huge picture of a merchant ship, but it's a Japanese merchant ship. <laughs> you know, they couldn't get an American one in there. They, you know, they got to, and they may even say it, it's a Japanese merchant ship. They're like, well, we, but we'll be okay. We don't have a capacity issue, but we could not find a U.S. merchant ship. couldn't find a, a ship anywhere to take a picture of it. <laughs> so, uh, so I think we got to, 
you know, the military's got to be, again, you know, there's a recent study that came out from the uh, Center for Strategic Budgetary Analysis that talks about this. And one of the things that they, they, they argue is, is like the, the, they need a champion. A champion, you know, it, it's not going to get done until there's a CNO, there's somebody in the military who's going to sit there and say, you know what, I'm going to defer one Arleigh Burke destroyer so that I can invest this money into something called the Maritime Security Program that gets me 60 cargo ships. Yeah, I mean, you you're, know, you're, I, you're, I don't need to build 60 cargo ships, but if I give a little bit of money to some operators, they'll bring their ships over from foreign flag to American flag. And yeah. for, you know, $5 million a year, I get this ship. And, and that's a pretty good deal. No, it's a, it's a huge deal. And you're talking about a Burke of, um, even now, I think it's uh, $1.5 billion um, to, to build. So that's a, that's a huge amount of money that could be, def- yeah, one, one ship. But we're so focused on ship numbers and we're so stuck in a carrier strike group mentality that there, I, I can't see a CNO doing that. Uh, it's unfortunate if we break from this mentality of of how it's always been or how we've done it at least the past twenty thirty years, and we say how is it actually going to look in the next twenty or thirty years? Then then you might make a, a legitimate analytical argument for taking that money and putting it toward the merchant marine. I mean, it, it, it's it's making sense to me now. I, I but I'm not. I obviously don't have the Navy's budget at hand. I, I don't see all the different ins and outs, but um, it, it's, it's um, clearly it's got to be something we look at. Uh, yeah. And, you know, and, and for example, I, I give you a, a real quick, I mean, we run these huge tankers between Valdez, Alaska and California. You give them a little bit of money that gives you an asset that in case of war, I could take this Alaska class tanker, load it with, JP5, which is the jet fuel, or, or Avgas, whatever I need, and I could put it out on one of these little islands in the middle of the Pacific, mm-hmm. and I could fill up eight MSC oilers with that, just from that one ship. Huh. And, and, you know, hey, I cut down my, my sea voyage, you know, by half, and I park it out in a toll in the middle of nowhere, you know, nobody knows where it is, and just park it out there. I could put some missile, you know, some missile, uh, missiles on the islands to defend it. And now I have a mobile, you know, uh, uh, support base out there. Yeah. And, and, and again, you give those guys a little bit of money, they're able to keep their ship U.S. flagged, and in time of war, you, you sail it out into the Pacific. And so, again, the big thing is, and I think John made a, made a big point about this in, in his article, and he said this, you know, you're having conferences and meetings where the Navy talks among the Navy. You're having conferences where the commercial guys talk among the commercial sides. What we need to do is get those two groups together in some sort of entity, where they're able to talk to each other and, you know, see what's beneficial. They, there's something that's beneficial to both both of them, yeah. and they just have to see it. Um, are you familiar with uh, NCAGS? Uh, Which, uh, well, I'm sorry, John. Na- na- it's a Navy um, Command and Guidance to Shipping or, or Cooperation. Oh, yeah, NCAG. I'm sorry, yes, yeah. Yeah. Now, is that is that an effective system? Is it is it universal? Is it local to? I mean, I've I'm, I'm familiar with it in the Middle East, but I don't know if it's something that we apply worldwide. Um, I mean, is it an effective way for for the Navy to integrate with the merchant community? It is. The problem that NCAG has is they have no money to go out and be at those events like we were talking about. You know, okay. they just had the, the the largest grouping of merchant uh, uh, shipping companies in the United States up in Connecticut not too long ago. And that would have been a place that NCAG should have been. Uh, you know, yeah. they should have been talking to people. They should have been 
there, but but their budget, if you know how Navy budgets are, is is terrible. I oh mean, yeah, they, they have no money whatsoever. Oh, that's that's not Great. surprising. So uh, we have a we have a mechanism in place. We're just not funding it. So um, we we need to to look at that. Um, hey, so real quick, um, there are some terms that we're throwing around. <laughs> I probably should have done this about an hour ago, but uh, merchant merchant marine versus. Military Sea Lift Command versus versus Mar- MARAD or Maritime Administration uh, versus uh, United States Maritime Service. Uh, can you help me to differentiate between all these terms we sure. throw around? Sure. So the Military Sea Lift Command is basically the Navy's Merchant Marine. This is this is the ships hmm. that the Navy owns, and they put Merchant Mariners on them. Okay. Ships like those replenishment ships we talked about, and they're also the agency that will charter commercial ships. In time of war. Okay. And so uh, there are now growth of, of several entities that have been around for a long time. And it basically, it's, a, it's, it's actually, even though it's under the Navy, it's a joint operation. And they report to U.S. Transportation Command. Okay. And that's a, that's the, a joint uh, Army, Navy, the, Air Force, Marine Command. That's, so Transcom is one of the combatant commands that oversees everything. Okay. Yeah, so in time of war, uh, if, the, if you had to move, you know, you know, an Army division out of, out of, you know, Fort Stewart and get it across the Atlantic, it's, it's Transcom that would go to MSC and say, okay, get the ships and, you know, we'll coordinate with the Army. You, you get the ships and we'll make this happen. Okay. The Maritime Administration is, is, is kind of like the FAA for, for ships. It, it, it's, it's, it basically handles all commercial shipping in the United States. But unlike the FAA, it is very diffused. There's actually a whole series of entities beyond Marad that, that do it. The, 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 Maritime Administrator, who's a, a guy by the name of Mark Busby, used to be commander of MSC, always said, I wish I was the Federal Aviation Administrator's, I wish I had his powers. Okay. Because aviation is a lot more unified than shipping is. But uh, Marriott operates a fleet of ships called the Ready Reserve Force, which is these, these ships, these 48 ships that are earmarked for war. In case we go to war, you can pull these ships out of reserve crew them up, but the problem is you need to draw the crews from the commercial merchant marine, which is getting smaller and smaller. As a matter of fact, Admiral Busby at a recent testimony sat there and said, we're about 1,800 mariners short. If we go more than six months in a war, we're going to be 1,800 mariners short oh, for what we need to man these ships. And even worse, he recently in this, in this congressional testimony in March presented a chart of these ships, these 48 ships plus 15 held by MSC, and nearly one out of ten of them are currently non-operational yeah. because of uh, maintenance and issues, and nearly all of them are over 35 years in age. I think the average age of the ships are 44. Jesus so Christ. He, is he Navy? So, you know, you is take he, the car, he, um, lay it up in the garage, you know, and wait 44 years, and then go try to start it. Yeah. Is, is Busby um, Navy or former Navy? He's name? former Navy. Okay. He's a retired rear admiral. He was head of MSC, and then uh, he uh, was pulled uh, to be the head of uh, Marad. Okay, so he was in the Navy when he was the head of MSC, and now he's um, civilian, essentially. Right. Okay. And, and and then there's this entity called the U.S. Maritime Service. So every guy who graduates or guy or girl graduates from the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy gets a reserve commission in the Navy, Air Force, Marines, whatever branch they want. And then they're commissioned an ensign in what's called the U.S. Maritime Service. Uh, 
they nickname it the U.S. Mystery Service because nobody knows what this is. <laughs> uh, it was it was created in 1938, and, and what it was created to do was train merchant mariners. It, 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 it's a training organization. It was designed to train mariners to so that in case of war, we had the system in place to very quickly and rapidly train merchant mariners, like in a six-month period. Okay. You can train deck and engineering officers and, and do this. Uh, the organization was, was basically deactivated in the early 1950s, but it's still on the books. Uh, it's still under the Secretary of Transportation, and the heads of the uh, Maritime Academies are all commissioned rear admirals in the U.S. Maritime Service. Uh, Busby uh, likes to joke about this that he can go around and commission people in the maritime service because it really doesn't exist. <laughs> I'll take a commission in the maritime service. That sounds fun. Hell, I, 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 am, I am gunning for a commodore. I want to outrank John Conrad. <laughs> so I'm going. I'm, I'm trying to become a yeah. commodore in the maritime service. That's my goal. It's not, it kind of it kind of reminds me of something I heard about called the um, civilian marksmanship program, which is uh, I think Truman started after World War II to to ensure that young men that were um, you know, young young American men were able to fire a rifle uh, yeah. to be a good shot. So he started this program, and he basically put rifles in the hands. I think you actually just it was for free. I think you just call them up, and they give you a rifle. Like oh, M1. Sounds awesome. Yeah, and it, it still exists today. But the idea was, hey, we want our youth to be ready. We want the the military age males to, to be, be ready. Yeah, and in the same way, you start this maritime service because we want people to be ready. And you're not going to be able you're not going to be able to start this from zero in the time of need, and and here we are. In a, I mean, we're not. Yeah, I, this, a, I actually wrote an article arguing when when Trump was pushing for the space force. I argued we should make a maritime force, and that was my argument was to bring back the maritime service because it allow merchant mariners like me. So, like me, for example, I have a second mate's license, but again, it's inactive. But I I can't join the navy because of my eyes. I had an issue with them back back in the day. I'm also a little bit too old now to really be. Uh, in the reserve, but if I want to keep my second mates up, I don't have that ability to do that. But if there was an entity like the Maritime Service in where I can two weeks a year, maybe you know a weekend every month, go and they pay for me to do my training, I go out on one of the school training ships, or if I show up down in Charleston on where where there's a batch of these laid up ships and do my you know quote unquote reserve duty, then I could keep my license up, and and that's a way to draw draw up mariners there are other ways to do it but but that's that's one way to do it but then you'd be teaching us in the navy how to do our jobs and we don't want to listen to you so you can only do well, that with CDs. we could be doing that too i hadn't yeah. thought about that <laughs> uh you know i mean we we, do, we can't have a we can't have a maritime force we have the navy we can't we can't, we can't have anybody showing us up <laughs> um no i i i think i honestly think that's a great idea just to to utilize the the intellectual capital, the experience that we have in the country, and obviously you'd have to call it the Salt Force, though. Yeah. yeah. Oh, there you yes. go. There yeah. you go. I think we have the beginnings of something here, <laughs> here and now. Market, yes. market down. Yes. Market eight, Donnie. <laughs> um, okay. Is there anything else that uh, we wanted to talk to Sal about today? Oh, we wanted to accuse him of, of being uh, Commander Salamander. Oh yeah, I meant to do that earlier. Yeah, we're we're pretty sure that Sal. We're pretty sure that you're you're masquerading as uh, Commander Salamander. And no matter how he answers this, he definitely you're, is Commander Salamander. And I I don't have that uh that 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 voice inflection of of Commander Salamander. I am not that cheery. I'm not that chipper. Yeah. I've you know I I teach college students. I can't be that cheery and chipper. I just I, I, nobody's I, ever described him as cheery and chipper. That's the those were not words that came to my mind. 
Um, Just get talking about LCS, and he'll get in a real good chipper, chipper mood. Oh, yeah, he sure it. will. He's been gloating recently. There was some article that was posted about uh, it's official. The LCS is a, a complete failure. <laughs> so uh, a, a littoral combat ship is a ship that the Navy designed in the 90s and tried to commission. And, and, and that's the one they'll be escorting the merchant ships, too, by the way. So oh, you know, imagine how I feel about it. You're, you're going to be escorting her. That, that, listen, that's going to be 100% true because I don't think anyone has ever really taken the time to figure out how much fuel those things suck down oh, God. and realize that you're going to need to have a lot more oilers out there to keep those things getting across yeah. the, the, the Pacific. You might as well just tow her across the Pacific. And then, they, they are terrible. Well, yeah, they're not going to cross anyway, but yeah. still. Jesus, how bad they, are these they're ships? They're terrible. But no, I am not Commander Salamander. I wish, uh, I, wish yeah. I had a, a podcast like his. Okay. Okay, Sal. <laughs> Whatever you say, Commander. <laughs> well... <laughs> Um, That's we an have ugly damn boat too. Yeah, there's two of them. You you, you got to find both versions because we we couldn't even decide on the hull design, so we we commissioned both, Jeez. which is a, a brilliant logistical strategy. <laughs> <laughs> Why have one design? Yeah. Um. Okay. Sal, was there uh, is there anything else that you wanted to get off your chest uh, to our our seven listeners about China or otherwise? <laughs> no. I again, what what I always advocate is you know there's. When, when I talk about sea power, and even when, you know, I hate to use his name because it's going back in history, back to Alfred Thayer Mahan, when he talks yeah. about sea power, they talk about, he talks about the military side, but in the very beginning of his, his seminal work, he talks about the fact that there is a commercial and a military side. And he says, I'm going to talk about the military side because I'm a Navy captain. And, and my argument always is if we're going to talk about being a true sea power, a true maritime power, whatever you want to use, phrase the Navy wants to come up with and the, and the military wants to come up with, you really need to look at that commercial aspect. And again, you know, one of the things that built our nation was our maritime infrastructure, whether it was, you know, ships sailing across the Atlantic or on the inland waterways. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, we, we tend to forget that. And so my, my advocation always is, is, is to promote you know, all things is maritime, you know, both military and commercial. And yeah, so, that's huge. You know, hopefully if, if, if people are interested in that, there, there's, you know, get them out there reading about some of the, you know, guys like Malcolm McLean and containerization, uh, you know, read about the, the maritime history of the United States. There's a great book out there called uh, Way of the Ship, which talks about the maritime history of the United States. Hmm. Uh, there was a great book put out a few years ago by Lincoln Payne called The Sea and Civilization, A Maritime History of the World. There, okay. There's some great books out there that, that kind of talk about this. And I think when, once you realize that and you, you read a, a book like Lincoln Payne, See in Civilization, you see how the Chinese have handled maritime before. You see what they're doing today is nothing new. Hmm. Yeah. They're repeating what they did literally back in the 13th and 14th centuries. Interesting. And so I, I think, and you they're... know, if we don't learn from the past, I hate to use that historical cliche, hmm. But, uh, you know, in the future, if we fight a conflict, we, we, may not, we may find ourselves in a situation where we can't sustain ourselves, which I think is a very precarious position for us to be in. Well, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that China is certainly, you know, doing what, what they have done in the past. And they're doing what we've done. They're, they're investing in that infrastructure. They're, they're ensuring the ability to sustain themselves. And, um, you know, it's good that we're talking about it. Hopefully we can get people to uh, start putting resources where they need to go. Um, and then uh, one day when we send up fault, uh, salt force, um, you can, you can be, right. you can be out there with us. Um, it'll be a great day. You can be a Commodore. That's fine. 
So if we if we if we stand up salt force, then uh, then we can just we can give you the commodore rank. I mean, exactly. Yeah, I already gave it to him. Okay. Oh yeah. So you you are the commander in chief of. Yeah, that's right. I can do these things. Okay. I'm a stable genius. Well, Sal, we've we've really enjoyed this uh, this conversation. Um, I've learned a lot. Um, I Frank probably would have if he was paying attention. What's that now? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and and I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. So, Sal, thanks again, and um, yeah. Hopefully we can keep in touch and uh, you know bring you back on. And uh, I appreciate it, guys. I appreciate you taking the opportunity, and I enjoy both your work together. I enjoy the podcast, and I enjoy the Salty Herald. So just keep it up. Awesome. Thanks, Al. Okay, we Thanks. enjoy compliments. Um, <laughs> plugs for the week. Um, oh yeah. Subscribe, so, like the podcast. Yep. Um, rate it, review it. I don't care if you actually like it; just like it. Yeah, just give it five stars. Yeah, yeah. subscribe. Do all uh, that. It makes it SoundCloud easier. SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher, Stitcher, and yeah, all those. Yeah, things. and then check out Salty Herald and uh, the Naval Institute blog. And uh, until then, keep it salty. <laughs>